This is a CNA podcast. And the U.S. Democrats have defied historic trends in the midterm elections. The party has sealed control of the Senate after victories in close contests in Nevada and Arizona. It means Democrats now have 50 Senate seats to Republicans' 49 seats. It's a major feat as voters often give the president's party a beating during the midterms. CNA's Jill Newbronner there with news of the Democrats holding the Senate with the remaining Georgia seat set for a December runoff. Hello, I'm Steve Lai, and it's been a week since the U.S. midterm elections, and while the Senate has been decided, the fate of the House of Representatives still hangs in the balance. The Republicans are currently on course to take control, but with a much smaller majority than expected. While the press and the pundits are predicting a giant red wave, uh, it didn't happen. That's U.S. President Joe Biden speaking positively of his party's performance after the midterms. I thought we were going to do fine. While any seat lost is painful, some good Democrats didn't win the last night. Democrats had a strong night. And we lost fewer seats in the House of Representatives than any Democratic president's first midterm election in the last 40 years. In this episode, we want to find out what the new political landscape in Washington looks like and what that means going forward as a focus shifts to the presidential election in 2024. Will Biden run again? Will Trump be challenged from within the Republican Party? Why does vote counting in the US just take so long? So many questions. And to answer them and to give you the inside track on all things midterms and US politics, I'm joined by our Washington correspondent, Nick Harper. Good to have you on, Nick. Thanks, Steve. Good to be here. Nick, you spent several weeks in the run-up to the midterms on a cross-country road trip, finding out what was on the minds of voters. And I'm really looking forward to hearing how that went. But let's start with the big elephant in the room, if you like. Let's talk about the red wave that didn't happen. Why was that? They had everything going for them, an unpopular president, inflation at 40-year highs, and a fear of a recession looming. Yeah, you're right, Steve. I mean, it's quite incredible when you mention all those things. It should have been easy for the Republicans to make the argument that the Democrats were doing a terrible job at running the country. We've got rampant inflation in the US at the moment. We've got a president with a popularity rating that's below 50%. And the Republicans had history on their side. Precedent shows that the party that controls the White House just simply does badly in the midterm election. So uh, the Democrats... Even they didn't think that they were going to do well. In the run-up to the election, they were playing down expectations, really trying to lower them. We saw a whole host of Democrat strategists, pundits, all coming out, reminding people how many former Democratic presidents like Barack Obama, like Bill Clinton, how many seats they lost during their midterm elections. Huge numbers running into the dozens. It simply appears, I think, Steve, that Republicans chose candidates that just weren't that palatable to some of the undecided voters out there. Candidates who denied the 2020 election win for Joe Biden. Candidates who they themselves were involved in storming the US Capitol on January the 6th. Candidates who had links to right-wing groups. Simply put, many of the candidates that the Republicans chose were just too extreme for some voters out there to stomach. And the blame game for the Republicans' failings then is moving into high gear. And a lot of fingers are starting to point towards the former 
President Donald Trump, and you mentioned numerous candidates that he endorsed, failed to deliver. Yeah, hundreds of candidates, all of them like-minded people who felt like he did that that 2020 election was stolen from him, who refused publicly to say that Joe Biden was the democratically elected leader of the country. And that blame game, yeah, all being directed at Donald Trump. I was reading a headline, in fact, just a couple of minutes ago before we started chatting. The headline was how Donald Trump torpedoed his own party. We saw during Sunday talk shows, there's lots of them in the US, they spent several hours dissecting the past week, a number of high profile Republicans on those talk shows on Sunday coming out and vocally, very publicly blaming Donald Trump. One of them had said that he had driven the Republican Party off the side of the cliff. Quite simply, it was a rejection of Donald Trump that I don't think we would have even considered being thinkable just a few weeks ago before this election. And on the Democrats' side, is there something that they did right, perhaps? Or is focus stateside purely on what Donald Trump and the Republican Party did wrong? Well, I think that candidate selection, the quality of candidates that some of the Republicans were speaking about before the midterms, uh, plays a very large part in this. But also the Democrats had this strategy that they gambled on, a strategy that it really wasn't clear whether or not it was going to work. They prioritised two issues that Republicans didn't want to talk about. They prioritised abortion and the fight for democracy. They thought that they would be motivating issues that would get voters to turn out, especially abortion, off the back of that Supreme Court decision in the summer that overturned a nearly 50-year ruling that granted abortion access across the country. And they also had one crazy strategy. Back in the nominating primary phase of all of this, Democrats were spending millions of dollars on ad campaigns backing far-right Republican candidates, people who were election deniers, because they felt that Republican voters in these primaries would choose these people that they were putting forward over more moderate Republicans. And then these right-wing candidates would be easier for the Democrats to then beat on election day. By one estimate, the Democrats spent more than $50 million in these primary races to elevate these very right-wing Republican candidates. So just so I've got this understood, the Democrats were spending money to try and get certain candidates elected because they thought those were the candidates they could beat? That's right. In the primary phase. So this was several months ago, ahead of the actual midterm election, when the Republican Party was choosing between different Republican candidates that they then wanted to put forward to run against the Democrat on the November 8th election. And the Democrats were spending millions promoting these very far-right extremist Republican candidates, spending money on ad campaigns so that Republican voters were hearing more about that far-right candidate than they were the moderate candidate out there. That sounds like quite a gamble to take. We saw what happened in 2016 when Trump swept to power. I mean, just, I mean I'm a bit aghast about this. It, it just mean, it seems is. like quite a gamble to take, it is. given it is. what had happened in the past. Yeah, a huge gamble. But I think it perhaps shows that the Democrats realized they needed to do something to try and switch the common thinking that the Republicans were going to sweep this, that they were going to get this red wave, that they were going to push the Democrats on inflation, that they were going to push them on high levels of crime. So they did really all they could to turn the tables. And it seems that, plus the combination of rights issues like abortion, like the fight for democracy that President Biden has spoken so much about, it seems that those things really helped to flip the tables in a way that we didn't think was going to be possible. 
Well, at the evidence bore out, the Republicans that did win places in office are the ones that try to distance themselves away from Donald Trump, uh, Ron DeSantis being one in question. We'll talk a bit more about him in the second part. But just then, to get a sense, Nick, we, I mentioned that you did a road trip before the midterms took place, getting a sense of what everyday Americans thought about the upcoming midterms. And what did you find? Well, I think being here in Washington, D.C., it's sometimes very easy to get caught up in that Washington bubble. So we headed out to the southwest of the country, to New Mexico, Arizona, Southern California, Nevada, to states where there are very rural Republican areas, but there are also large urban centers where there's lots of Democrat voters. Unsurprisingly, the Republicans, they were all saying that inflation, the economy, cost of living was going to be the big issue for them. They were predicting a red wave. Democrats, again, moving towards those rights issues, including things like climate change. And they said, although they worried about the economy, many of them said they felt Biden was doing a good a job as possible. One man I do want to mention, though, that I met, an African-American man, Kevin Young, he told me he was a lifelong Republican, that he voted for Donald Trump in 2016, but he didn't vote for him in 2020. He told me that he was not predicting a red wave for one reason. He felt that Donald Trump, by choosing these candidates, was going to ruin the Republican Party's chances in the midterm elections. It seems that this guy should have a crystal ball for all events because, yeah, his prediction seems to have been spot on. Well, did you ask him about 2024? <laughs> <laughs> I should have done. All right. Stay right there, Nick. Next on CNA Correspondent, I'll ask Nick what the next two years in Washington could look like for Biden's legislative agenda and what it means for us here in Asia. And what a wounded Trump is likely to do with the presidential election two years away. Hi, my name is Julie Yu, and I'm the host of the new season of The Climate Conversations. From chefs to scientists Join me as we get personal with the people driving change in sustainability. Look out for our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. You're back with me, Steve Lai, and Nick Harper as we look to give you the lowdown on what to expect following the U.S. midterms. Nick, let's start with the Democrats and President Joe Biden. What would losing the House but retaining and possibly strengthening in the Senate mean for his legislative agenda? Well, his domestic legislative agenda, it's still heading towards gridlock, if that is the situation. That agenda would be dead on arrival in the House of Representatives. To get a bill passed through Congress, it needs to go through both the House and the Senate to have approval from both of them before the president can sign it into law. He may also struggle on foreign policy as well. For example, the Republicans have said that they want to reduce funding to Ukraine, that there will not be this blank check, as they've put it, going forward if they win the House. That's been the biggest complaint from many Republicans, even some of the ones I spoke to on the road trip that I did, that they were very concerned the amount of money going to Ukraine that they felt should have been spent in the US. For the Senate, though, retaining that, it means that Biden will be able to confirm cabinet members. That's something the Senate does. They also are all about appointing federal court judges. If a Supreme Court seat becomes available over the next couple of years, then the Senate would have to approve Biden's nominee. So it certainly helps having a majority. 
Of course, we've got to wait until the Georgia runoff election to find out whether the Democrats will win one more seat. It would give them 51 seats versus the Republicans 49. That would be helpful because over the last couple of years, the Democrats have sometimes run into trouble in the Senate with Joe Manchin, the West Virginia senator, unhappy with some of Biden's policies and has stood against them. So having one more seat in hand would help them in the Senate if they were to pick up Georgia in a few weeks' time. Yeah, so that's a look on the domestic front. If we look at sort of the international politics side of things, and for us here in Asia, how will this impact Biden's plans for Asia and his relationship with China in particular? He has just met with Chinese President Xi Jinping in Bali, their first in-person talks since Biden became US president. It probably won't change that agenda very much. I mean, it's one thing, China, that both parties agree on, that the US has to stand up, has to counter China. They see it as a relationship based on competition. And Republicans and Democrats, they both agree on that. So we probably won't see much change. If anything, if there is more gridlock at home, if the Republicans have the House, then Biden might push more on his foreign policy. That's something that we've seen presidents do in the past. So we may see more engagement with the Indo-Pacific region. And just on that Biden-Xi meeting, I think from a dynamics and optics point of view, it certainly helped Biden going into that meeting. He would have had more confidence, more spring in his step. He certainly had a strengthened hand when he met the Chinese leader. And I think it also has helped to reassure allies in the Indo-Pacific region in these meetings at the G20 summit to show that the US is a perhaps more reliable partner, that the Democrats have more staying power than allies might have seen being the case if the Republicans had swept both the House and the Senate. Well, let's stay with Biden then. He was born on the 20th of November 1942. He'll be 80 very soon, which means if he were to run again and win, he would be 82 years old when he would be sworn in in January of 2025. I don't want to sound like an ageist, but is that a concern for the Democrats and for voters as well? It's a four-year term. It is, yep. Biden's birthday, his 80th on Sunday. Happy birthday, Joe Biden, coming up. It is a huge concern, though. I mean, there have been questions about Biden's physical and mental fitness throughout, really, ever since he said that he was running back in 2019. His aides in the White House have been trying to demonstrate his vigour, demonstrate his mental agility. But there were some very damning exit polls out of the back of those midterm elections. Two thirds of Americans said that Biden should not run again. More than 70% said they were dissatisfied by the country under his leadership. However, we have seen Democrats do much better than was expected. That strengthened Joe Biden's hand if he decides to run for re-election. But there is that concern, I think, at the back of Democrats' minds as well. If it's not Joe Biden, who else could it possibly be? Do they have a strong enough candidates waiting in the wings to take on the Republican nominee, whoever that might end up being? Yeah, he has said that he's going to think about it over the Christmas period, speak with his wife, Dr. Jill Biden, and then decide. So we'll have to wait and see on that front. In the wake of the midterms, though, not just Republicans, but right-leaning media starting to distance themselves from the former president, Donald Trump. He said he's going to run again. Is anyone from within the party going to challenge him? Undoubtedly, the biggest name, I think, there is Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor who just got re-elected in a landslide victory, coming out of the elections looking much, much stronger than Donald Trump. I think perhaps this one consideration, though, is Ron DeSantis is very popular in Florida. Is he as popular across the other side of the country? He doesn't perhaps have the same name recognition as Donald Trump. Also, Marco Rubio, a Florida senator who just won re-election, Ted Cruz, a senator in Texas, both 
Both of them have political ambitions. They ran against Trump before Ted Cruz has said that he would run again in a heartbeat. So yes, there are challenges out there. Ron DeSantis undoubtedly the strongest of the bunch so far. Okay, now while we wait for the final results to come in on the House, and of course we have to wait till December for that last Senate seat in Georgia, the question we have from watching over here is, why does it take so long for for vote counting in the United States? It seems remarkable. It is the million dollar question. Simply put though, it is because there is no centralized system here in the United States. Every single one of the 50 states can do it their own way. They all have their own rules. It is this patchwork of rules that we see in so many walks of life in the US, how much you pay in tax, what your gun rules are. It's all decided by the state. So some states have machine voting, others have paper voting, some allow you to vote early, others say you can only do it on the day themselves. And we've got some states that will allow votes to turn up up to 10 days after the election has ended, Alaska and Ohio. So there is still this long lead time afterwards where votes can arrive and be counted. So it's not uncommon that it takes a long time to vote. What has become a problem these last few years is obviously those widespread claims of voter fraud from Donald Trump and his supporters claiming that just because it's taking a long time, it is evidence of tampering by the Democrats. Yeah, when transparently you're waiting for all the results to come in and then suddenly there's like a hold up and you're waiting for more balance to come in. And that's where speculation comes from. I don't even remember the term election denier being a thing before the 2020 election, let alone having such people actually having their own names on the ballots, people that are saying that the 2020 election didn't happen and yet they're running in this election for the midterms. By and large, though, we haven't seen so much controversy on that front this time around. No, not this time. You're right, Steve. It's incredible that we had people running on this very idea that 2020 was a stolen election, piggybacking on Donald Trump's claims, and dozens of them doing so. 19 of the Republican nominees for Senate were all election deniers. 22 of the Republican governors that were running, same again. So some of them won, many of them didn't, largely a rejection from voters of those election deniers. We haven't seen really any of the controversies that we saw in 2020. Donald Trump did put out at least one video, one on the night in particular, saying that the vote counting in Arizona, that taking a long time was because the Democrats were trying to cheat, but really nothing along the lines of those widespread claims that Donald Trump was pushing a couple of years ago. All right, Nick, and just one last question for you. What's your biggest takeaway? You've been on the road, traveling across different parts of America. You've been reporting in Washington, D.C. as well. What's your biggest takeaway from this year's midterms? Don't trust the polls. But that's my takeaway after the last few elections. I mean, they have been spectacularly wrong. They they were wrong for Hillary Clinton back in 2016 when everyone said that she was going to sweep to victory, be the winning Democrat. Of course, Donald Trump came in and they were wrong again this time around. So, yeah, polls are very interesting. They're great to read but perhaps can't always be trusted. That's why you got to wait for these results before we can discuss it all. Thanks so much, Nick, for your time as always. And where can our listeners find and follow you to keep up with your reporting from the US Capitol? I'm on Twitter at Nick Harper FSN. I must admit, I don't tweet that frequently, but that's where you can find me. All right, thanks so much. Now, we might not have the full picture of the midterms yet, as there are still some races that are yet to be confirmed, but we do know a few things. The economy is not the only issue important for Americans. Abortion rights and the preservation of democracy are as well. Also, Donald Trump's brand of politics has yet again been rejected by the majority of voters in America. So what influence will he have on the Republican Party as it regroups ahead of the presidential election in 2024? And who will be running for the Democrats? We'll have to leave that for another episode. The TV version of CNA Correspondent airs on CNA every Wednesday at 9.30pm. You can also catch up with it whenever you like on cna.asia. 
Do like and subscribe to this podcast version that takes you behind the scenes with our correspondents. And thank you for listening. Our podcast team is made up of Jacqueline Chan, Daniel Lee, Joan Chan, Crispina Robert, Clara Ong, and me, Steve Lyon.